Hi, welcome to Get Ready with Tony Stewart. On today's episode, I am pleased to have a longtime friend and associate, uh, Bob Bingham. Bob Bingham is the co-founder of the wealth management firm Bingham, Osborne, and Scarborough. Bob founded the firm in 1985 with his Amherst College classmate, Ed Osborne. BOS now manages close to $5 billion in assets, has nine partners, and approximately 50 employees in two barrier offices. Its headquarters are in San Francisco and it has a branch office in Redwood Shores. The firm does high-end financial planning and manages portfolios of diversified no-load funds, principally with Vanguard and DFA, on a fee-only assets under management basis. The minimum portfolio size for BOS is $3 million. Welcome to Get Ready with Tony Stewart, Bob. It's great to have you on this morning. Thanks, Tony. It's great to be here. Uh, you can probably see that I have a uh, serious black eye. I'm a squash player and I got hit by a squash ball in the eye yesterday, but I did have my goggles on, so I'm okay. How does the squash ball look after this? <laughs> well, I'm afraid the squash ball uh, came out of it looking pretty much the same. I don't know <laughs> myself. <laughs> no damage to that. Right. Well, Bob, it, it, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, I've known you for, I think, uh, about almost 25 years, and uh, it's been a pleasure to work with you and to know you over the years, and I'm just so excited to have you here today. I, I think you can bring so many uh, great ideas and concepts and inspiration to all of us, uh, wherever we are in the span of our career. Uh, so thanks for, again for being here. Thank you, Tony. Uh, yeah. So let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, you started off as a teacher and, you know, going to running a large financial planning firm, that's, that's a huge transition. What was it like making the transition from being a teacher to uh, financial advisory work? Well, it was, um, it was, an evolution. Actually, after I was a teacher, I spent about three years in the uh, in international business, living in Africa for a year and a half, and then coming back to San Francisco as a marketing director for the firm. It was a uh, it was an uh, yeah international multinational firm uh, that. Uh, sold chemicals and machinery to the sugar industry internationally. So, um, so that's that's actually what I what I did. Primary what I did before I started BOS. Although there was another addition, um, I I left the uh, the international business job because. I fell in love with my wife and I didn't want to travel as much as I had been. And uh, frankly, when I did that, I had no idea what I wanted to do. This was in my early thirties. And I ended up uh, telling my wife that I was going to go out and, uh, and work outside to clear my head for six months. I got a job as a, as a landscape laborer, basically pick and shovel. And I uh, ended up doing that for two years because I was having trouble figuring out what I wanted to do and um, not to get too long here, but ultimately I left that job still not knowing what I wanted to do. And I sat down with my wife one day and asked her what she could see me doing. And she said she thought I ought to um, help people with their investments. So that's actually how the firm uh, got going. And, but teaching was very important and uh, our firm from the beginning has been very conscious of educating our clients uh, in the uh, sort of process of financial planning and investment advice and we consider that just a huge portion of what we do the other thing we've always done is tried to speak very plainly not getting involved in jargon 
So the wonderful thing about my profession uh, was that uh, I did have the opportunity to teach uh, throughout my career, and I know that the clients really appreciated that. So you feel that the teaching uh, history that you have, the, the experience of being a teacher really did make that kind of positive impact for your clients. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, it was just a big focus of ours from the beginning to educate clients about the investment process, the financial planning process. Uh, for example, we were always very clear that there would be a time when the market would move downward in a significant way and their assets would actually lose money. We used to talk about that very freely and we showed them historical examples of what portfolios like theirs would do. And I think uh, because of that, we lost very, very few clients, even in major downturns. In 2008, which we all know was pretty disastrous, the Standard & Poor's went down 50%. I think we lost 1.25% of our clients. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. Well, and I think that's amazing. And I think that's a lesson that we can all take to heart is no matter where we are across the spectrum of working with clients, that that education really helps with client retention and uh, customer slash client satisfaction. I think people miss that our clients are also our customers and that if we can help them fully understand the products that they're products and services that they're engaged with, that one, they'll stick around with us a lot longer and that they'll be much more satisfied with the products that they have. And hopefully they'll end up with the products that they need, the products and services that they need. I, I know I've had the pleasure of working with a number of your clients over the years. And that's, the one thing that's always really impressed me is that with you and your partners and the other members of your firm is that everybody always had a really good understanding of what they were doing. And I, I, I think that that cannot be overstated the importance of the educational process and taking the jargon out and the fact that your clients did understand fully what they were doing. And I think, Bob, and you know, you can definitely chime in on this is that that informed decision making, I think, led to much better customer experience. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the bottom line is that the investment world today is highly complex. Um, lots of products, lots of philosophies. Um, and, 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 and it's actually somewhat similar in the insurance industry, I mean, uh, there are um, types of insurance policies and types of uh, strategies that most people just don't know. So uh, they are hungry to, to know more. And uh, if you educate a client, uh, they have a much greater satisfaction level. And as you said, I think they are much more likely to stay around. Uh, and, and particularly, I think it's really important to educate them about downturns that uh, will and can occur, uh, especially in the investment field, uh, so that they understand that someday uh, their assets may diminish in size, at least for a, a period of time. Definitely. And that's definitely a concept that's transferable even if you're not working with investments is that there are going to be negative things that happen in every long-term client relationship that there won't always be a specific negative, but there will be things that may be less uncomfortable or that the client may not be happy with. Let's say with insurance, it's more likely that there'll be a rate increase, uh, which yeah. is sort of an inverse of that. So I, I think that's just a hugely important lesson. Uh, one of the things that I find it, that's most fascinating is that over 
a relatively short period, you went from a firm with two people, you know, it, admittedly a, a small operation, uh, to one of the most distinguished and largest wealth management firms in the U.S. With you know, as as we talked about, with over fifty employees. What what was it like? What lessons did you learn uh, through that growth? Well. Ed Osborne and I, uh, from the beginning, had uh, some goals. One of those was to institutionalize the practice. And what I mean by that was that we wanted to build a firm that was not based on our two personalities, um, which I think is important. If one thinks about one's insurance practice or one's financial planning practice or one's investment advisory practice uh, to the extent that you can wean clients off of you as a personality through the years is important. Uh, it's important in order to potentially uh, sell or transfer that practice uh, down the road. And it's important, I think, for the client because uh, we as as personalities uh, may not be around uh, for as long as they hold our products. So, um, so I think institutionalizing a practice is important. Uh, so we brought in a third partner, John Scarborough, after we'd been in operation about four years because we thought that we could really use uh, another partner and we just built organically so that, uh, you know, initially, as you were saying, there were two of us and uh, we had an administrative assistant and, and, and that was it. And from the beginning, both of both that and I would sit in uh, client meetings because Ed was more the analyst and I was more the uh, business developer if you will. Uh, and so I thought it was important for them to have direct experience with the, uh, you know, the market analyst. But so, so Tony, we just build organically. And as we, uh, as our business got bigger, we, uh, we brought in, uh, we, we, we started the designation of a portfolio manager, which was basically the person uh, underneath the partner. Uh, when we did that, we would start meeting with a partner and a portfolio manager. Um, and then as the business grew, uh, we added portfolio managers and grew again organically by through the years, essentially promoting portfolio managers to the partner level. We never in the history of the firm have brought in a partner horizontally to the firm. And I think that's uh, been one of the keys to our success. The other, the other thing I would point out, uh, just incidentally, is that um, you actually can grow a firm and have lots of people um, just by bringing in more people to essentially sell your service. But we never wanted to do that. Uh, we, we wanted to retain a collegial atmosphere to the firm. And even today, uh, I, I think they have that. I, I've been retired for about 11 years now. But uh, the way that we controlled size was by increasing minimums. Uh, because mm -hmm. in our field, uh, you can manage uh, large amounts of money with not necessarily large number of people uh, if you don't expand your business by people, if that makes any sense. So, uh, so the bottleneck in our, in our business is clients, not assets. Mm -hmm. So basically in order to control growth like that, we, we would raise our minimum portfolio size uh, periodically through the years. So initially we had no, 
we had no minimum. Uh, our first client, I remember, was $12,000, and uh, we sort of celebrated. And, uh, and then we just, we just grew the business uh, through minimums, 250000 500000 a million. And today, the minimum is $3 million. And that's allowed us to manage $5 billion with 40 people. I mean, there are other firms out there that are managing that kind of business with 150 people. So a part of it then is really, and I think we're, that that may be a great uh, segue, is that you were able to leverage uh, technology and expertise into effectively, you know, taking on more accounts, uh, not, not more accounts, but more assets and able to not have to hire a significant number of people to be able to do that. And uh, I, I think that's an important lesson. It's something you and I talked about uh, before the podcast is that uh, there was a transition to using uh, the Schwab portfolio, which at its time, if, if I recall correctly, it was relatively new, right? Yes. Well, it, it's really, yeah, the, the Schwab platform, that was revolutionary when it came in. Uh, and it came in in oh, something like 1990, 1991, I think. And basically, that allowed an advisor to have uh, different funds on the same platform uh, from different families uh, and be able to transact, to, to move from one fund to another in the space of a day. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas historically, before that, there was really no way to do that. So in the early years, we used uh, the Putnam funds and the American funds, which were commission-based as two fund groups uh, that we managed. And we took great pains to make uh, transfers non-commissionable by staying within the families. But the bottom line was, if you tried to move from one family to another, it took days uh, and so, uh, so Schwab made two things possible. One, it made it possible to hold no load funds mm -hmm. uh, on, a, a, on a significant platform and allowed you to use multiple no load funds and, and transfer money between them. So it was, it was a huge breakthrough in the industry. So do you think that leveraging of technology, it was a big reason uh, why you were able to grow the firm uh, the way that BOS grew? Yes, definitely. Ed Osborne, um, my uh, initial partner, my founding partner was uh, or is kind of a genius around computers. Very, very, very uh, uh, facile with computers. Uh, he actually had been a partner in a law firm and he wrote the first program uh, ever for uh, law firms. And so, so yeah, having that all along, that technology was very, very important. Because uh, when we started the firm, uh, using computers, uh, desktop computers was st still fairly nation. And um, and then, yeah, Schwab coming in with, with that technology was a huge advance, for sure. It definitely. So, you know, the, I think the lesson that translates uh, to the insurance industry is, as you know, there are a lot of insurance technology companies and financial technology companies that are coming in and, quote, unquote, disrupting the industry. However, that I think in a lot of insurance companies are recognizing this and the insurance technology companies themselves that it's to some degree a lot more effective to work together and to marry the benefits of having individuals and humans involved in the process, human advisors with the technology back end and that you can be a lot more successful. Do you see that as a viable trend rather than just, you know, let's say in the financial uh, services world um, that a lot of the so-called robo advisors have not been that successful. Uh, do, do you see that there's more of a place for 
a blend of advisors using technology and insurance companies using technology? Well, I think that, uh, I think in our business, there is a huge advantage and need for personal interaction. And of course the robo uh, companies uh, basically diminish that. And um, so my bias is to utilize technology uh, to the extent you can, but maintain high touch. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a valuable lesson that some insurance uh, companies are starting to recognize is that they're acquiring or incubating their own technology firms or partnering in a different way, but still retaining that human touch. And I, and I think that's very important. And that gets back to something we talked about earlier is that there's something to be said for that human touch and educating clients uh, in simplifying the languages that if a client is working with a robo-advisor and maybe someday artificial intelligence will actually reach its tipping point and it will be able to successfully help clients understand things more effectively than a human advisor. But I don't know personally, based on my experience, is I don't know if I see that happening anytime soon. Do you see that happening anytime soon? Artificial intelligence. Well, uh, artificial intelligence uh, seems to be making its mark on our, on our society for sure. But the one, one thing I would comment on is that if you are, you know, if you're working with a robo advisor or maybe artificial intelligence, um, the business is not sticky. Uh, in other words, uh, a client can easily leave and uh, go to somewhere else where they think they make a larger returns, for example. Whereas if you have a, a personal relationship with a client, automatically that business model, it's a business model that is, is stickier and is able to retain clients. The other thing is, if you do uh, financial planning uh, using multiple, you know, multiple products and 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 a plan for that individual, again, that makes the business uh, much more likely to retain its clients because uh, if you're in in our case, in probably I don't know ninety percent of the situations we manage all of the client's money and we have very sophisticated financial planning that goes along with that so um, I mean I think clients love us and don't want to move anyway but one is going to think long and hard about leaving a relationship like that and sort of starting over if you will definitely and so you feel that's where uh, agencies and companies can really differentiate themselves still uh, in this age of burgeoning technology by providing that high level of service and high level of touch. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that as an insurance agent or, or a financial planner, you want to, you want to maximize your use of technology um, in the back office. If, if you will, uh, certainly there are wonderful programs, client, uh, uh, for uh, managing prospects and clients. There are wonderful uh, programs that allow you to uh, have right at hand the person's portfolio, or in this case, maybe uh, his insurance portfolio. Uh, those are terrific, but you want to maintain high personal touch with the clients. So I guess I would view the technology as really more important between whatever technology platforms you're using and you as the advisor more so than you as the advisor and the client. That makes that's, sense. Uh, yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Uh, you know, uh, I wanted to transition to one of the things that I think is really important uh, that you touched on earlier and I think was a key differentiator 
for being a Mossborn in Scarborough. And it's something that's come up in the insurance industry, but hasn't really gained any trans- uh, traction. And that was moving from commissions to fees. What was that like? What was the decision-making process like? How did that benefit you and benefit the clients? Sure. Well, in the, in the early years, actually the real, the real uh, genesis of the firm was, was my working for a large, uh, financial planning company called Equitech that was trying to bring financial planning uh, to the consumer uh, using sort of multiple subsidiaries to do so. And, and that's where I cut my teeth. And, and ultimately I brought Ed Osborne into a partnership within that company. And then the company ceased their retail operations. And that's when we started the firm. But we were working on a commission-only basis. Uh, and uh, for one thing, in those days, you really didn't have a great alternative. Schwab wasn't there. Managing no-load funds really was, was sort of unheard of. So, uh, so basically, we were commission-based. And uh, if you're starting a practice, it's hard to do it on a pure uh, asset under management basis because you don't have that m- many assets under management. Yeah. Uh, although I have seen firms do it successfully. Uh, one way you can do it is uh, to have uh, good financial planning services that you can charge fees for and allow that to bridge uh, your, your practice. But we were commission-based and essentially we recognized early on that the model of, uh, of charging for, for assets under management, we, we felt was a good model for the client uh, because it sort of uh, gets rid of the perception that, uh, that the advisor wants to make transactions in order to earn money, the, you know, the logical conflict. Um, so we felt that it was, uh, a powerful model for the client, but also, frankly, a powerful model, business model for us, for us, because if you, uh, if you work on a fee basis uh, for clients, and I think, you know, insurance agents these days, a number of them are developing uh, investment sides to their practice. And uh, to the extent that you can do that on a fee basis, you basically have a form of business that gets paid from an annuity, if you will, versus a transaction. So if you're collecting fees, you are not waking up every day needing to make a sale. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, in our, in our case, I, I mean, it, it, there's a breakdown, but say you're charging 1%, uh, which we do for the for the first tier of assets under management, then that goes all the way down to, I think, 0.25%. Uh, but um, that that's an annuity. Uh, that client uh, is with you typically for the rest of their life and, and they are paying fees. They're happy to do that because there's no conflict of interest, but it's also an excellent business model. You can leverage your time as an advisor. Well, that's great. And I think that's a common philosophy that runs through everything we've discussed today is keeping it client-centric, uh, uh, making sure that you're able to retain clients by serving the clients and making it a- a- attractive for the clients to stay with you. I, I think is we, uh, I'm sure you'll agree that it's much more expensive to get new clients than to retain your current clients. Uh, was that part of the decision-making process for you and Ed and uh, later on, John? I think, well, I think that's, yeah, understood. Uh, I'm not sure it was a driving principle. I think the driving principle was uh, 
we wanted a business that was based on portfolio management, not investment sales. So that was a key part of our ability to transition because even when we were on a commission-based, we put a huge emphasis on managing portfolios, not selling products and, uh, you know, giving high touch advice. So when we, when we made that transition, we were able to go to our clients who were on a commission basis and explain that, uh, we felt that this new fee structure was in their best interest. And, uh, and sometimes that, that amounted to their paying us more money, frankly, because again, we were very geared to not recommissioning clients. We, you know, they would pay a commission to, to, um, to buy a fund, but then as we managed the portfolio, we would do that within the family, so there would be no new commissions. So in many cases, they were actually paying more when we made that transition, but um, we did not lose one client when we made that transition because they, they had gotten used to us as being an advisor and being a manager, not being salespeople. And many of them said, you know, we always wondered um, how you could be compensated fairly on a commission basis. So I think that that's important. So if you, if you imagine that you want to make that transition down the road from a commission-based business, start to genuinely manage the portfolio, uh, educate the client, get them used to the fact that you were doing more for them than just uh, making periodic transactions and sales, if that makes any sense. Definitely, definitely. It makes a lot of sense. And I think that translates, even if you are, uh, such as in the insurance business, still uh, hemmed in by only being able to be compensated by commission, is that it's really about the relationship and helping the client manage their insurance portfolio and looking at it as managing their insurance portfolio rather than that you're selling them an auto insurance policy, homeowners insurance policy, a life insurance policy, that it's you helping them with a macro overview of their insurance planning needs. Uh, you know, and if you do offer financial advisory services, of course, that the insurance plugs in as a part of their overall financial plan, but that it, it's really a portfolio decision. And I know that's one of the lessons that I've learned uh, from working with you over the years is that viewing it as an insurance portfolio, not as one or two insurance uh, policies, that it's part of a bigger plan and a bigger strategy for the client. And I found that that's worked out well for both me personally as an advisor and also uh, for clients that I work with, that they have a much greater degree of satisfaction and retention uh, for working with me again or referring new people to me. And I, I know that's a big part of how Bingham Osborne and Scarborough grew is through referrals. Um, yes. So I think, I think that's a hugely important thing. I'm trying to think, I feel like we're missing something. Uh, I had a couple wrap up questions. Is there anything that you feel like you wanted to touch on? Um, well, I think that um, <laughs> you, you, you mentioned some questions in, your, in the prep work. Uh, you said, what is, what is the funniest thing that ever occurred in your practice? And uh, I don't know about the funniest, but one thing that was memorable was, uh, and I think uh, people out there that are listening who have who have, who have their individual RIAs, Registered Investment Advisor status, uh, we all know that part of uh, doing that involves a disclosure statement that you give to the client that is mandated by the Securities and Exchange Commission that's called an ADV Part 2. And it's essentially, like I say, a disclosure statement to the client. And part of that, uh, you have to show uh, your... Uh, your occupations for the prior 10 years. And mm -hmm. 
my, uh, my prior occupation to getting in the investment business was as a landscape laborer, literally, <laughs> which I explained before. So when we finally got to uh, the 10 year point and we could drop that off the, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, 10 year schedule, that was uh, uh, sort of a funny celebration. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then I think, uh, you also, I, I made a, so a couple of notes. I think you also asked uh, what, let's see, you've got it there. What, what were, um, well, what were, what were some other key, key points to building the, the practice? One was recognizing all the skills necessary in a practice and compensating for them. Uh, in, in my industry, and I think actually in insurance firms often, there's a bean counter mentality. This is my client. This is your client. Um, you eat what you kill, right? You, you bring yeah. in a client and, and, that's, uh, and you get the compensation for that. So it favors business development. Uh, from the very beginning, we worked, the, the moment that Ed Osborne became my, my partner, and he had been a, a partner in a law firm, uh, I said, Ed, you're going to have 50% of, uh, of the, uh, you know, profits that we make as a firm or the income, if you will, even though your main, uh, main job description is analysis. He, he was very uh, proficient in understanding investment markets and um, how we would manage assets from a technical standpoint. Uh, less of a business developer than I. So your traditional firm, I would get higher compensation because I was the business developer. I, I felt from the very beginning that I can bring in a client, but in order to retain them, they need to have uh, uh, market uh, knowledge. And, uh, and so through the years, even now, we have compensated partners who... Uh, do more of that than business development. Uh, we've compensated them them well, um, and uh, then the so I, I sort of break our business down into three three elements: the business development element, which is critical, of course; the uh, analysis element, uh, which you do also in insurance, right? Which which mm -hmm. policies am I going to use? Which have the most value to clients and then client client relationship the ability to relate to clients so i think in a uh, in a uh, successful firm uh, you need to have players that can do all of those uh, the the other uh, the other thing let me just let me just check here so uh Oh, yes. Uh, I am a big believer in partnerships. I think it makes, uh, it makes uh, working in this field more fun, and I think it uh, offers the client a better service because, uh, you know, two thoughts are often better than one thought. Uh, and I think that uh, when you, particularly when you, well, as you bring up, as you bring on a second partner or a third partner, find people with complementary skills. So if you're, if, if you're a strong business developer, don't necessarily bring on another strong business developer as your, as your partner. Look for a partner that uh, perhaps is willing to spend hours on a computer each day doing analysis um, which is a critical part of the business. Ed and I were very complementary um, mm -hmm. in, in, in a number of respects. So I, I think when you build a business, you want to think about that. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, think that's, I think that's very important. And uh, the other, I'm just checking, Tony. 
That's okay. Well, I, I, I think one of the important things that you're saying here is that I think people need to remember is that everybody brings. Excuse me. Is uh, no me? problem. <laughs> I think so. Okay. I don't know how to get rid of it. You're going to have to edit that out. Right? We'll let it play out. Yeah. I forgot that. I think that's hooked up to my, oh wait, I might. Yeah. We're just going to have to edit that out. That's okay. We'll wait it out. In the, in the meantime, I'm looking. Uh... Yeah. So back to the program. Uh, so what I feel you're saying that's really important is that we need to recognize the value of everybody in our organization and that everybody brings value and that you have to treat people fairly and equally rather than getting bogged down in who is responsible for what is one is that's a rabbit hole that you can get really deep in and never find a satisfying answer as well as it's something where people might leave your agency or your company uh, is because they feel that they're not being treated as an equal partner even though they're what they're contributing is as vital to the organization, but it may not be as revenue <laughs> facing in, in so many companies. There's a breakdown of silos for profits. And in your situation, I, I, I think what's so impressive is that you recognize that each silo brought its own importance, whether it was analytical work, whether it was marketing work um, or just backroom work. Yes. And so, so a way of saying it concisely is you want uh, the client to be a client of the firm, not of an individual. And uh, the, the sort of corollary behind that or the result of that, if you do it successfully, is that you do institutionalize the firm. Because if, if you truly have uh, made the client relationship one with the firm, through the years, then you can retire. Uh, you can get out of the business and there is a firm there that they appreciate and that they have been working with. Definitely. Well, and you're ultimately serving the client as best as you can uh, because they're able to continue with somebody with the philosophy that the client likes and benefits the clients. At the end of the day, that's what we're all I think here for is that we're here to benefit our clients, no matter what our role is or what we're selling or servicing or consulting on is that it's really at the end of the day, it's about our clients and how we can provide the best service to them and best help them out. Yes. And, and so that's a big tenet is uh, m keeping the client first uh, in your priorities and everybody kind of says that, but, uh, you really have to do it. An example in our firm, uh, is that every once in a while we may make a trading error. We may, uh, not, uh, not move a position as quickly as we should have, or we may have bought something that we shouldn't have. And so we have to sell it and, uh, and buy the correct thing through the years. We were very transparent about that. In some cases, a client actually didn't know that there was an error, but we uh, always told the client about it and we compensated them. So if there was a move in the market and, uh, and the mistake uh, involved several thousand, thousands of dollars, we, we wrote a check for that amount. And uh, that was just one example of how we kept the client uh, first in the business. I, I think that's just absolutely critical. Definitely. And I think that's a key differentiator, you know, with the technology question uh, that we were discussing in the advent of robo advisors and different type of technology firms is that it's all about the clients and that's where the human touch can come in really handy. Um, so what's your top number one rule for success that you would want 
the number one rule you would give anybody? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really, I think what we just talked about is uh, forming a practice that is completely client centric. Um, I don't know if I can say one thing, Tony. Um, and, and making clear to the client that you are trustworthy and, um, and honest. I mean, you in your practice, it's very clear when you're interacting with a client, and I always respected this, that you have them uh, first in your mind and you would uh, do your insurance analysis and um, if you thought that they needed less insurance than they thought you would tell them that if you uh, if you could offer them a uh, a term product versus a whole life product and you felt the term product was best you would do that even though it was not in your financial uh, your immediate financial interest um, so I think that's how you approach a practice. You don't approach it purely. You, you have a firm, not strictly a business. There's a business element to the firm, but you make your decisions based on what's better for the client, not, not what's better for the business. Definitely, definitely. And I think that's critical. Uh, and I, I think that summarizes everything we've discussed that it's it's about the client and how you can best serve the client and that while doing so you are going to grow your business and people are going to recognize that and that they'll want to do business with you in the future because they'll, they'll know that you have their best interests at heart that it's not about the next sale or the next dollar it's about the relationship um, you know, so as, as a final question, you know, you're retired. What's, what's next for you? What's the next chapter for Bob Bingham? Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Tony, you know, I totally forgot about, I think this is, this comes in uh, from, let me see if I can. It's okay. Yeah, so I, I, I think I, um, okay, so yeah, sorry, we're just gonna have to edit that out. I think okay, that's coming I'm in. Making from, a note. I think that's coming in from my uh, phone. Um, the well, for me, uh, yes, I think about chapters in my life. So when I retired, I was 59, um, and um, I would, you know, my my sort of model has been to discover the um, the formerly undiscovered parts of yourself. Uh, so, you know, I took up um, fly fishing. I, I took up, uh, I, I've been uh, taking harmonica lessons through the years. Uh, I try to leave myself time to uh, read. I took up golf. So, uh, but so the next, the next phase is probably uh, the phase that I'm already in. We're grandparents. Uh, there is nothing like being a grandparent. One of my clients once said that if you, uh, if you can't have grandchildren, what's the point of having kids? <laughs> that's, that's an exaggeration, but uh, you, you can look forward to that, Tony, someday. That's <laughs> that's been gonna... a, yeah, that's been a huge joy uh, in, in, in my life. So oh, that's fantastic. Well, and I know that you were very active in uh, marketing uh, your wife, Carol's book. Uh, and that that was a big part for at least a couple of years, right? Yes. Uh, she wrote a book called sugar cookies and a nightmare, which was basically her experience uh, with the death of her daughter. She lost a seven year old daughter to a rogue wave, uh, boy, 35 years ago or so, and it transformed her life. It, it, it caused her to go back and be, uh, get a psychology degree, and she had a, a practice in uh, trauma, uh, you know, trauma uh, 
counseling through the years. And so, yeah, I, I, I helped her with uh, getting that book uh, out to as many people as possible. It's still available or it is available on Amazon. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that was, that, that was a significant part of her life. I think the other thing is you just want to, you want to keep challenging yourself. And, um, I mean, funnily enough, one way I've done that is through golf. I'm a big athlete. I spend, a, I spend significant time playing squash and getting hit in the eye and uh, playing tennis and skiing. And, but I took up golf and, um, it's a hugely difficult sport, but uh, it's been really fun for me to try to get better in that sport. So uh, you want to look around. You, you know, I serve on some boards rather than big established uh, nonprofits that I uh, that I sat on in prior years. I'm I'm more interested in smaller, uh, nascent uh, uh, nonprofits. I find that to be uh, rewarding. Um, but I also tell people when they retire to not jump on a bunch of boards because um, that is something that people can easily do. Uh, but you want to just leave yourself time to, um, to again, find out more about yourself and get involved in things that you know nothing about, but become a real stimulus in your life. Definitely. And I, I think that's really important to keep challenging yourself. Uh, Bob, it's, it's been a real pleasure to have you on today. I thank you so much uh, for taking the time to come on Get Ready with Tony Stewart. If you'd like to learn more about Bob's firm, uh, the website is bosinvest.com and that will be in the show notes. Um, I think since we brought up Carol's book, it's, it, it's an amazing book. It's, it, it is hard, a little bit hard to read as a parent, of course, because that's one thing you don't want to think about is loss of a child, but it's, it's an amazing story. Um, and so I'd recommend, uh, you know, if you want to read something about a person's journey that will really move you is sugar cookies and a nightmare is a fantastic book. Uh, so until next time, thank you for uh, tuning in to get ready with Tony Stewart. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony.